What's up, everybody? This is episode one of season one of the Trumpet Summit, a brand new podcast where we're talking shop with some of the greatest jazz trumpet players in the world. My name is John Raymond, and I'm your host. And I can't wait to kick off this first season with a conversation that I got to have with one of my all-time heroes. I mean, we're talking about one of the goats of jazz trumpet, easily one of the most influential players in the last 40 or 50 years, the legendary Tom Harrell. You know, if you know Tom's playing at all, I'm sure you could agree that there's something so special about the way he plays and how he's able to sort of transcend all of the minutia of the music and somehow get to the core and essence of what it's all about. And I'm telling you now, there's stuff that he shares in this conversation that honestly, I haven't found anywhere else, okay? It's like he grants us exclusive access into his mind and his process and how he hears and and understands music. It's amazing. Okay, he's gonna talk about some moments that he had when he first heard the music and what he felt when he heard it. He's gonna talk about his process of what he did from there to get his stuff together and some formidable experiences he had with Horace Silver and a few others. And we also get into some really fascinating conversation of sort of the danger of getting too technical or too black and white with things and how that can take the mystery and the magic out of the music. So thank you guys for checking this out. Subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And without further ado, here's the great Tom Harrell. All right, time for a shameless plug. There aren't any sponsors for this podcast, so if you want to support what I'm doing, one way that you can do that and actually get something out of it is by going to my website, john-raymond.com, and picking up a PDF or a hard copy of my new book called The Jazz Trumpet Routine which is a fundamentals book geared towards creative improvisers that is essentially designed to rethink how we go about practicing and approaching fundamentals from the perspective of a jazz trumpet player, okay? It includes over 175 different exercises that are designed for players of all ages, all ability levels, as well as for those who have any amount of experience in jazz or improvisation. More importantly though, the book is gonna help you develop an approach and a concept for how to do those exercises in a way that mirrors the improvisation process so that fundamentals and improvisation become one and the same. But the best part is that every single exercise comes with a call and response style play along recording that you can practice with so that you can hear an example of how it should sound and then imitate it yourself. And this is the whole idea behind the book is to develop such a vivid concept of how you want something to sound and then simply play what you hear, right? Trumpet playing is really meant to be that easy. So check it out, john-raymond.com. I'd appreciate your support. Hi, Tom. How are you? Good, good to see you. Oh. It's good to see you, too. Thanks so much for doing this. Oh, pleasure, definitely. You know, there are plenty of great trumpet players that learn the language of the music, they understand harmony, they play with great time, but there are not many who I feel like transcend the details of the music when you hear them play and and get to something that's really at the core and at the essence of 
of what we're trying to do. And so I guess my first question to you is, how do you go about doing this? Well, it's a, I, I think, you know, you, like Charlie Parker said, you know, you, music is your thoughts, your wisdom. If, if you don't live it, it won't come out of your horn. So I think you have to live the music and um, it's, it comes out in how you live. Um, um, I mean, I'm not putting myself on a pedestal, but I mean, I, I just feel like my whole life I've tried to, in the music, keep the music pure and well, one thing I might say is, I too is um, I try to transcend my ego and um, uh, keep from. It was like Stallone's monk said, when you're swinging, swing some more, you know. So like that's my philosophy too. I mean, just don't stop and pat yourself on the back and say this is it. Just keep going and we're only here for a minute you know so on the planet so make the best of it and try to play as well as you can you know and, and uh, because I mean admittedly maybe I shouldn't say this but sometimes there's peer pressure to uh, not get too good you know if you get too good then you people I've been in situations where in academia for one thing they they criticize you for being standing out of the crowd, you know, you're not, well, it's not only academia, it's the entire culture. Uh, you're not supposed to be too good or you'll, they'll think you, if you do something different, they'll think you're an oddball. So, but I'm not afraid because I've been, I've experienced rejection all my life. So it doesn't phase me. So, um, I mean, it does, but I, you know, Eric Dolphy too, he said, there's a problem being different in maybe it's even this country, you know, they, there's not the respect for art in, in, in this country that there is in Europe, I wouldn't say. I mean, there are grants and everything, but sometimes if you, an artist is looked on as an outsider, so, which in a way is maybe a good thing, but um, I just feel like if you're going to be an artist, be an artist and be creative and use your gift, you, you know. And Almost embrace your uniqueness. That's, that's very true. Can I ask you a question about something that you said a second ago? You, you mentioned that you try to get your ego out of the way and, and that hopefully can help the music to, you know, speak through you um, and you just be a vessel for the music. Uh, how how do you go about doing that? Is, is there certain practices that you have, whether it be meditation or yoga, or are there certain musical things that you you do to let that happen? Well, I always I'm starting to to study meditation and as an ongoing thing, and yoga too. I mean, yoga is a very beautiful study and um, embraces physical culture as well as spiritual world. And I, um, it's true, like re physical relaxation is 
very important. And yoga really enters in with when I first began studying the trumpet, I realized that it has a very immediate healing effect when you, because of the breathing, there's the physical reality. And um, so that my teacher later on, my, he was a teacher of European classical tradition on the trumpet and he mentioned the importance of yoga breathing and later other, others have outlined it to me, how it interacts with meditation and um, yeah, in Tibet they have the trumpets, the conch shell trumpets. Um, it's, you can see how it interacts with meditation when they play the long tones and it's a healing process. All musicians are healers and if you look at it that way, you, you're interacting with the audience and with the other musicians to create a healing process. Have you always thought of music that way or did that change or evolve over time for you? Well, yes, definitely evolved. I mean, I didn't always think of music that way. Uh, when I first heard it, I was, the first thing that hit me was the aura of excitement. And um, when I was a young child, my my parents told me I would dance to the, they would put records on, they were into jazz too. and. Uh, Popular, jazz was popular music in the 40s, so we had a lot of great records and listen on the radio when I would dance. And but it, so it was the rhythmic basis that got me first and the excitement. Um, but later I realized the spiritual dimension um, entered in more um, as I got more into music and um, and I read about other musicians who were spiritually minded and of course John Coltrane really created the ultimate spiritual statement with music and I've read that you when you started learning the music at a young age you were listening a lot to Louis Armstrong Roy Eldridge Dizzy right yeah um, can you talk about what that process looked like for you how, how old were you when you started learning them their music and emulating them and I don't know if you were transcribing them or what did that look like well yeah the my parents there again they had some great the classic hot five and hot seven LPs and uh, so I heard Lewis from a very young age and um, also we visited New Orleans and my family went to New Orleans and um, and then um, I remember the impact of Lewis's sound and such a golden sound and yeah. also his time feeling still sounds modern and Bill Woods told me he was, that Lewis was the first to play behind the beat and uh, as you can hear in Miles Davis too like how the, Lewis's influence carries over to Miles Davis and and the sound, the, the golden, that beautiful burnished sound and um, and the time feel. Um, after I heard Lewis, I started hearing Roy Eldridge and 
DZN uh, on records. And um, also I heard Lewis live too in a hotel, great hotel in wow. Vermont in, in San Francisco with his group with Billy Kyle and um, Tony Young. And, um, and around the time of Matt the Knife and came out and um, I heard Roy on records with Gene Krupa let me off of town when we didn't meet all day. And um, I started trying to emulate, well, it was a natural thing to try to emulate Roy too and Roy Eldridge. And later I got to meet him in New York and he was, it was like meeting a saint, you know, he's such a nice person. And um, then I met Dizzy too in New York uh, at the brass conference and we had played with Phil Woods together too. Um, Dizzy was unbelievable person and such, such an innovator. And I heard him on records when I, right before high school and um, I transcribed when I heard Night in Tunisia, I made a really incredible impact on me as well as other, I'm sure everyone else who heard it and um, tried to make an arrangement of, right away I tried to want to write an arrangement of it for my group and uh, um, and also there was a record of when I first heard Charlie Parker um, on a record my father brought home one time with a help compilation album had Relaxing Camarillo and also um, with Howard McGee and Slam Slam Blues with Dizzy and, and and Charlie Parker, because I think it's also good for trumpet players, aspiring soloists to check out instrumentals, not only on their own instrument, but on other instruments, especially saxophone and piano. Um, really an in interplay between trumpet and saxophone, especially. Yeah. Now, up to that point, had you had a, any teacher talk to you about how to transcribe or, or you just simply heard the record and, and was it like a, a compulsion and urge, like, I have to figure that out or, or how did that happen for you? Well, yeah, I was pretty much self-motivated. I uh, was an urge. I mean, I, I didn't have any instructors in jazz music until... Well, the instructors are the players themselves. I mean, the records themselves. And uh, I have a background in European classical music. I have instruction in, in, that, in that, which is beautiful too. But um, I, well, when I got to, of course, when I got to camp, uh, college, uh, there, when I went to Stanford, there were some great people in the jazz field. and. Um, got to study with John Handy. Um, it was, I love his playing too. And, um, but prior to that, I, um, I was 
like in middle school and stuff, I was transcribing and arranging. Um, but I did get turned on to a book by Russell Garcia to help me a lot with changes in a lot of things. The, his first first volume of his arranging text and um, it really opened up the door to harmony a lot for me. And, um, and as you were transcribing these solos, did you, were you analyzing them kind of by nature? Oh yeah, when I first, when I first heard Bruin High by Dizzy, I was, it was a, such a beautiful impact because I started checking out the melody to Groove and High by Dizzy's composition, beautiful composition based on the chord changes to Whispering and um, that he had written when, when he played with Benny Carter. And like when the melody goes, was a part where it goes like that was so magical the impact of that melody hmm. I, I felt the magic right away and um, also not in Tunisia when the melody goes I mean there's a certain you can't put it into words the, the way the notes feel you know I mean people I've talked to people <laughs> about melody before and a friend of mine in Paris, he said, there are no books about melody. And I know what he means because how do you describe, well, that gets back to the first question you asked me. I mean, uh, how do you put into words what makes a good melody? It's pretty difficult. And you can talk about technical details, but you can't really pin down what it is that makes a song go to someone's heart and soul and because a good mel a good song you can carry you through life, you know. Yeah, of course. Were there any other melodies, you know, at this time period for you that really stuck out like that, that had that effect? Well, yeah. When I heard "Relaxing the Melody," the "Relaxing the Camarillo" by Charlie Parker, that has an immediate impact too. And uh, rhythmically, it's such a masterpiece. Well, in all ways, harmonically and melodically. And um, plus, I love the intro that Dodo Marmoroso played too on that. Mm, yeah. the beautiful chords. And because um, I guess that's <clears throat> that's probably the first thing that's got me into modern into modern jazz is the harmony. It was what hit me first. It was because it was so different. It seemed like it was so so different from swing swing or the swing the bop thing. But it actually, it, you can see it's a gradual evolution. If you, which Al Cohn made me aware of in an interview that if you really trace the music of the swing era, the big bands into the bebop era, the revo bebop revolution, and see it's really gradual, like Charlie Christian with Dizzy and Thelonious Monk, you can hear the link with, with swing, but also sure. it's a new thing, which it's, that's one of the things that really intrigues me is how do, how do these things 
it's amazing the how they connect innovations how do they it comes it comes from somewhere but you can't really tell it's hard to put them into words yeah were there any um like live gigs that you saw other trumpet players on like you you said you saw Louis Armstrong play was that was that a different experience at all from hearing him on record all the times that you'd listen to it? Well, definitely, yeah. And you could feel his personality, the warmth of his personality. And uh, plus, you could see the guys were having in the group were having fun. Like when Billy Kyle played, he played a certain quote from a Colgate toothpaste ad. You know, I, I mean, it sounds crazy, but. The melody of brush your teeth for Colgate, and then they they sang back Colgate dental cream. But I mean, it sounds crazy, but I mean, you see the guys importance of having fun, which it's like jazz is not stuffy, you know. It's not it's a party music, so mm. um, so that's beautiful. Um, it's like Charlie Parker said, if you make jokes, little jokes then ideas will come. So I think it's humor is very important. And yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. So you're transcribing all these people. You're emulating their sounds. You're trying to get inside of what they're playing. Are you at this point also improvising a lot? Well, yeah. On your own I time? Started, right from the beginning, I was trying to improvise. I was trying to play jazz right at from the beginning of when I first started playing trumpet, but I didn't know anything about changes. So it was a little, because um, I didn't know anything about harmony. So I it was hard to just kind of gradually assimilate. I looked for every book I could find about harmony, but and, and the new music, and they mentioned the chord of the flatted fifth. And I tried to play it on the piano, but I. I couldn't find the voicing that they were playing on the record, so I got really frustrated. Wow. But then I I started, well, finally, my parents, we got a piano in the house. I had been playing the piano. My friend across the street, they let me play the piano there. But um, And then I finally got a piano when, when I was in the seventh grade. And so I started learning more about piano harmony. And I discovered the triad with the added sixth. And that really opened up a lot. And then I was writing for, I had a group then too, uh, with trumpet and saxophones. And, and When you were in seventh grade, you said? In the seventh grade. Wow. Middle school. Started out trumpet, clarinet, and drums. And then it went to, um, and the clarinet player also played alto. And so we went to, trumpet, two altos and drums, and then kept adding saxophones. I was writing all the time. I, um, when I look back, I'd like to hear what, I, I don't know if there are any tapes, but I mean, right now, I'd, I'd love to add an instrumentation now. I mean, yeah. I mean, um, well, Nat Everly did a great album with, with the sax section too, like Gerald Wilson arrangements. Oh, yeah. Um, want to go back and check that too um but um so you were already writing a lot even at that early age well yeah i just 
Were you just trying to copy the melody that you were hearing and learning? Yeah, well, that was a tune called, it was recorded by Jimmy Jufri on Crown Records. It was a version of um, Royal Roost and uh, the And I, I wrote that out for, um, out for my group. And then I had some uh, of my own originals that I wrote out for the group. And uh, we would play sometimes at concerts, assemblies, they call them, in middle school, seventh and eighth grade. And um, I would love to hear that. But um, yeah, we have to check it out. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was a natural thing because the music was so beautiful, is so beautiful. And, um, and then when I got to high school, I wrote a big band chart. There was a big band in high school. Well, there was a big band in the middle school too, but I didn't write any chart for the big band there, but I, I wish I had, but uh, in high school, I wrote a big band chart on Tenderly. And, but then I started I wasn't as productive as I wish I could have been, but the teacher was very good in high school. He was, um, I mean, he was jazz oriented. Well, so was the teacher in middle school was good trumpet player and good saxophone player. And he taught me about horn tones hmm. and practicing and a lot of things. Um, and he had, there were good charts, Art Dedrick and also the, the, the Kendor series of um, there was some Gil Evans charts too, um, but um. And was he the first trumpet teacher, like formal teacher that you would say you had? Well, uh, I had studied in fourth grade. I, when I was eight years old, I took trumpet lessons then too in classical music and uh, uh, it was a good clarinet player. He was, he was instructing all the instruments and he was a nice guy too, but he was more into the European classical too. He wasn't really into jazz. I mean, he didn't bring it up, but you must remember at that time in the fifties, jazz was kind of a taboo subject in, in certain circles. You know, if you, in a school circle, in the elementary school, you, you wouldn't want to, the teacher wouldn't want to reveal that he was into jazz, and, you know. He would have been he would have been ostracized probably. And, I mean, because like when the big band music started proliferating in the in the early '60s, they changed the name from dance band to stage band, so it would be sound more respectable. And they they thought so. Um, hmm. Yeah, when you were starting to take trumpet lessons, so elementary school, middle school, what kind of things were, were your teachers getting you to work on and, and did, w were you doing a lot of those things in the same way that you were doing, say like you were trying to transcribe Dizzy or transcribe? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I thought of them concurrently. Uh, yeah, I, my teacher started me out on long tones, on easy steps to band, the, the great textbook by Forrest Bartell his father and um, uh, so it takes you to shows the importance <coughs> of learning step by step so um, 
which you can apply to also the physical calisthenics. Oh, I got a book by Roger Spalding later on about yeah. wage development. So, and that was step by step. And so I think it's a very intelligent way to develop your range and your breath control, your physical strength. And, um, but yeah, when I, I always thought of playing the technical side as, I mean, and the European classical side as well as, as a, into jazz um, as being, you know, equal components of the picture. And um, but, but like when I was at Stanford, I most at first most of the teachers I studied with were into European classical music, but but I always wanted to do some kind of union of jazz and European classical music and. Um, it started to come into focus more and more at, right after I, right before I left college and because um, I was writing, I got it more and more into writing at the end where I would write every night, um, at least for an hour and um, felt like the door would open and I would just start writing. I'd try to write a, maybe a song every night and then um, even if it's sketchy, I would try to conceptualize a, a piece every every day. So it would keep my imagination flowing. And well, I admit I wasn't, I hadn't yet gotten an extended form as much, but even though I did write a big band, a couple of big band charts in, in college, but um, although, there again, that's a, another, uh, might even be a semantic hang up because big band music kind of leads you into extended form and small uh, quintet, sometimes you play ahead and followed by the solos, followed by the head to improvise the melody statement. But, um, but there again, Dizzy pointed away like with Tunisia, in fact, the, the original title was Interlude, so it has that fantastic interlude after the melody and, and the shout, beautiful shout courses. And he himself was a big band arranger too, so um, as well as a great trumpet player. But, yeah. And after Stanford, you moved right out to New York after that. Well, I lived in the Bay Area for a minute. Um, I uh, and just got to do some great, amazing things. The, the music scene is really beautiful in the Bay Area. And um, I went with Stan Kenton in 1969, then I went with Herman, big band in the 70s, early 70s, 771. And then after that, I stayed in the Bay Area and played with Malo, Azteca, and Cold Blood and uh, recorded with Vince Guaraldi and um, also played with my own group. And then Horace Silver called me in 1973. So I come audition for his group and or to join his group. And I went to New York then and we did a rehearsal 
friend with Mike Brecker, a friend of Mike Brecker's at his house. And, um, and you know, I, so I got the gig, so, um, which was mind blowing. And as Horace has always been an inspiration too. Mm-hmm. In high school, I was listening to Blue Mitchell and Junior Cook and now I'm blowing the blues away. Yeah. And it was beautiful. So at that time, you know, you, you'd done schooling, you'd obviously done a lot of work on your own, learning the music, trying to emulate all these masters. Now you're getting these great opportunities to play with these musicians. Uh, thinking back to that time period in your life, were, were there certain gaps or holes in your playing that uh, you felt like you had to really work on in those early years of your career? Well, I remember one thing really stands out. One time we I did a gig with with Horace in, in Boston and there was a write-up in the paper. Uh, by that time, it was Bob Bird and myself in the in, in the front line. So, uh, with Horace and they gave, they said Bob had a scalar approach, and and he was, he, he enjoyed that accolade, and then uh, he was happy with the write up. But he said that I had bursts of near fire, and what I, it, I made me worry because they said near fire. So I asked Horace about that. He said, well, you play with fire, but you could even play with more fire. So uh, and that was one, kind of one of the turning points when I realized maybe I should you know, work on creating more, more energy in my playing and, than I had been previously. So, and then one time in Cincinnati, we played with Horace and uh, at the Viking Lounge and the audience was really receptive and it was really beautiful energy. One time I started playing, Horace started yelling, holler, holler. And that that was like a, kind of a turning point in my life because I mean, I felt that I'd finally reached something heavy beyond belief. There was something heavy in the music that's, you could say it gives you goose, goosebumps or whatever, but there's something about the music that's unbelievably powerful and beautiful. So you were saying that, Horace was saying to play with more fire more often. What, what did you do in your playing? What did you work on to, to get that happen? Well, it's simply try to focus on creating more more excitement. It's I don't want to <laughs> if you break it down technically, it might take away the magic. Sure. Yeah. I don't want to be too technical. Well, one thing, Alvin Queen, the great drummer that was playing with Horace in that group with Bob. And um, he gave me a cassette. I have to admit this this was a very influential turning point too. Gave me a beautiful 
recordings in cassette format of Charles Tolliver with the quartet with Stanley Cowell and and Ron Matthewson on an album. And I realized Charles is putting so much energy into every note on that on that recording and his and his compositions too. Even though he's he's the only horn, he's created the energy of a big band with a quartet mm. and uh, by his writing too. Uh, that influenced my writing to hear that. And then also I love the album Members Don't Get Weary with Maxwell's album with Gary Bartz and Charles and Stanley Powell and Charles sounds great on that too. Well, I heard Charles live too that with my with Willie Bobo in Sausalito, California. And I love him too. Um, I try to emulate players of and of course, Freddie Hubbard, when I heard Freddie, I heard him live at the both end in San Francisco and that was transcendent, I mean. Mm -hmm. And so you would hear these, these amazing players as you then tried to take some of that energy or something in the music that you were feeling into your own playing, did you get really technical with it or was it just trying to get that feeling that you felt when they were playing? Well, the feeling is the most important thing. Of course, technique enters in too. I, I mean, I was still studying the technical st side, still am now too, because I think that's valid. But it, <laughs> if you talk about it, it can be, I mean, you know, that's why I'm a little afraid to be a teacher because like they said, Bartok taught piano but he didn't teach composition mm. you know because if you talk about the technical details sometimes it can to me it's scary because you might give away some of the feeling but because as you say the feeling I mean it is an important thing and um, but still I try to do a little transcribing then too but and see what people are doing with lines because it all as a player on a single line instrument it all it all revolves on the melody, melodic structure, and um, um, also I got to play with really high energy drummers. I mean, interactive. In New York, I think the drum has the greatest drummers, and um, got to play with Al Foster, and um, we did some live gigs at Boomers with Joe Farrell, and that was great. And I always loved Joe Farrell too. Um, and I remember a, state, I, a friend of mine gave me a book about Maynard Ferguson, and there was an interview with Joe Farrell, and he said that he used to live with Jackie Byard in the Ed Sullivan Theater. They had a apartment then when when they were playing at Birdland and and he said they tried to play like Eric Dolphy. So uh, I've always loved Eric Dolphy and try to play because that's I guess that's the one of the mysterious things about the music of the 60s and the 50s, late 50s maybe, when people started playing out, you know. I mean um, it's a fantastic thing. Um, 
going outside the changes. Yeah. That's what I, there again, how do you how do you describe what it is? Right. Um, it can take the magic away from it almost. You know. This is the thing I struggle with. I, I I'm a professor at Indiana University now. Pretty. And uh it's one of the the things on my mind the most as I work with the students I get to work with because I feel exactly what you're talking about. There, there's something about being able to explain everything that strips the magic away from the music, uh, which is what draws us to it in the first place. Yeah, well, it's like it's I like mean, the mystery. The mystery is so important, you know. That's very true. I mean, I mean, I'm not against lectures per se. I mean, and, and instruction because uh, I've seen, you know, I've seen. At Stanford, John Lewis with the MJQ, he gave a lecture. I saw a lecture he gave, and he didn't seem uncomfortable or anything. Although I did remember something heavy that he said, that which isn't always acknowledged, that jazz has more is more harmonically complex in terms of the chord structure than, say, the music of. European classical music of of the 19th century. I mean, I mean, I think he even mentioned Beethoven. As great as Beethoven is, if you look at the chordal structure, it's basically a certain thing. It's not as, and then you look at the chord structure, say a Thelonious Monk, it's, he's so much more complex intellectually. Mm. Um, but uh, sometimes that isn't always acknowledged. Um, I mean, if you look at the chord structure of the classical period, it's basically based on one, four, five, the three triads. And whereas jazz's music is more, much more sophisticated than that. But hmm. uh, I'm not putting down instruction. I mean, because uh, I benefited from my teachers too. Well, it's a, I, might, I guess you might say there's a fine line on how you teach it. Sure. Can I ask you uh, a specific trumpet question? Uh, I, I've, I've read also that when you're not on the road, you, you practice four hours a day, sometimes more. Um, and I'm wondering just if you have a, a set daily routine that you do every day or if it fluctuates depending on the day and, and what are some of the things that have been in your routine for for a number of years, if, if there are any? Well, it's pretty, the technical aspect, the chop thing is pretty, pretty uh, established for me. Uh, the, the musical side is something else, but I try, but the, I try to integrate the chops workout with the music because if I think of something, I try to write it down that by something unique, try to commit it to paper. But um, as far as the the regimen, when I'm not doing concerts, it starts with long tones and then playing single tonguing exercises. I was helped by the James Stamp book too, mm -hmm. um, for warm-ups. 
and tonguing exercises. Also, of course, regular Clark Technical Studies number two and um, the Top Tones book with the two octave scales and <clears throat> two octave arpeggios. Yeah. Single tonguing. And um, it's basically articulation and endurance. I mean, playing a long time. Sometimes I play with records and hold long tones and um, or try to play emulate the solos on the records as I'm listening. And um, also work on range, extending the range and keeping it. But there again, step by step because uh, you know, you um, you don't want to hurt your chops. And um, like I once heard Mike Lawrence say to, to a student asking him about how to practice, he said, "One thing you got importance of resting while you practice." Because he he said, "Sometimes it's a drag," you know, which is true. That's one. That's one of the hazards of trumpet because. Sometimes it's so pleasurable, such a pleasurable experience to play that you don't want to stop, but sometimes you have to in terms of um, keeping your, not hurting yourself. Yeah, absolutely. When you're doing all these kind of fundamental things in your daily routine, do you have a certain goal that you are kind of aiming for? You know, do you want it to sound a certain way? Or are you trying to get it calisthenically to, to feel a certain way or is or is it just a matter of doing it and going through the the process itself well yeah you're again you're, you're right the feeling is very important and also the sound you want to create the timbre that you want and also the shading you might want to have a certain shading on the note but you want a certain i try to have a striving for clarity and um which involve, usually involves long tones and perfecting this, try to perfect the sound the way you want it to be. And pedal tones are great too for the sound. And my teacher told me that um, one of my teachers, the, the European classical teacher I studied with in the 60s said that, you know, working on the, the lower bottom register is good helps your high register, so that seems to be the case, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And was there anything that you you did over the years in terms of working on practicing over changes or, or improvising or anything in particular just besides the emulation and, and transcribing side of things? Was there anything specific that you tried to do on a daily basis or a regular basis with that? Well, practicing, yeah, facility too. You want to work on um, speed and uh, precision and being able to play quickly. And, I mean, bebop is basically a virtuoso music, so you have to keep your chops up every day. And so I always try to practice changes and kind of in an up-tempo frame, uh, framework as well as medium tempo. And um, also I try to see what happens <clears throat> with 
using different notes of the chord uh, uh, in different ways. And one thing I noticed, the beauty of staccato playing um, uh, pointed attacks sometimes can be very beautiful. I didn't re always realize that, but like, um, like when you take, well, I guess I'm giving away the secret, but like when you play a, a note that's an upper, one, any one of the upper extensions of the chord, if you play it in a staccato, it has a really heart, heartfelt, it has an impact, emotional impact, hmm. as much as if you played it in a long note. Um, I, it's hard to describe. One time I was a, at a party and someone played up the recording we did when we were in Woody's band, Woody Herman, um, and I played a solo and there was a drummer there. The drummer was there and on the recording he said, wow, that's, that my solo was being played on, and he pointed out that there was something I did that was maybe unique, so, um, and it involved a staccato note or chopping off a phrase or something, but uh, that's a stylistic element that's int very interesting mm -hmm. where you hear it in, um, right away, I think of Woody Shaw and also Dean Morgan. I mean, the way they staccato, yeah. and the way they set it up and um, well, or even, I guess, they talk about playing the pickups being longer than the phrase itself, but um, different rhythmic things. Um, yeah, yeah, of course. You know, it's striking to me hearing you speak about trumpet playing or music or these records that you listened to early on and how many times that you have used the word beauty or beautiful and to me I, I, and you can correct me if I'm wrong but it, se it seems like you're always processing things in this emotional way and nothing becomes overtly technical or overtly uh, black and white or something it uh, maybe gets back to that mystery that we're talking about there's a certain feeling and that's what it all comes back to it seems like yeah, it's very true. I always try to relate it to my feelings. And um, one time I played with Bill Evans. I sat in with Bill Evans once and in a concert situation. And um, he, after we played, he said, told me, never play anything that you don't think is beautiful. And I, was remember, and I always remember that because sometimes, I must admit, sometimes I do try to play something. I might play something because I think it sounds modern, but I might not always, whereas I should probably always strive more to, to be, make it beautiful. And um, I mean, you can, not that you, I'm not saying, I mean, there are different forms of beauty. Sure. And, and modern, you can, as long as you feel it, that's the main thing, you know, it can be as weird or out as you, as you want to get, but as long as you feel it and it's beautiful to you, then that's, that's what matters. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I always love to try to create beauty and um, well, Sam Jones said that too. Music is about beauty. Mm. Mm. I'm wondering if you have thought specifically about how to quote unquote develop your own voice as an improviser, as a player, or or is this something that you feel like has just come naturally by absorbing all the music that you have it and that you didn't put a conscious thought to that? Well, yeah, I mean it might be conscious a little bit. I just um one thing that helps tremendously is hearing playbacks of yourself of recordings. Yeah. And uh and then you can choose the things you enjoy and uh, about your playing and try to work on that to further extend those things. Um, and also I, I enjoy the interplay with the audience too, if, because I want, to be ex want my music to be accessible and I enjoy hearing their input when they, when the audience, when you reach the audience and you realize you've, you've communicated and that, which I think is very important. Yeah. Hmm. Profound. You know, it's funny, we, we haven't even talked hardly at all about your life as a composer, as a writer, and, and we don't have a lot of time, but I, I was curious, um, do you write much music from the trumpet? Yes. Yeah. Well, I do that also from my head, inside my brain, in my heart. And I mean, I, while I'm practicing, if I hear something that I like, that seems to be developed or committed to write it on paper, but sometimes um, I admit <laughs> that can be a kind of help too because it keeps me from practicing. But uh, I mean, have to strike a balance, but I always seem to have ideas every day, but mm. I mean, you need to keep your chops up, especially when there aren't any concerts. So though, but still I try to write, I write from the trumpet also, I try to sit down at the piano at least once a day and play and uh, work on changes. And sometimes melodies come from the changes too, from mm. the chords and the voice and, yeah. and rhythms too. Um, it's weird how play a I'll play a voice thing on the piano and then all of a sudden it suggests a rhythm um, or a melody. And when you're when you write your own music, do you practice in advance over the changes of the tunes that you write, or or even as as you're playing it, you know, during a a tour or or during a run? Well, I try to work on the changes as much as possible. Um, it's hard because sometimes I write, seem to write a little over my head. So, in terms of harmonically, so I really have to be careful. Yeah, I'm trying to write more simple changes now, so I can really zero in. Yeah, on the changes in. I have the same problem. <laughs> I think that's it. Seems to be a common thing among, you know, players and writers is you write things that stretch the way that you improvise and, and maybe vice versa they they go hand in hand or something of course that's beautiful too i mean uh, you want to stretch yourself uh beyond what you do already but 
it's good if it's a gradual process, I guess. And um, sometimes I put the stretched out part in the melody and then deliberately write something more comfortable for myself for the blowing. Mm. In a way, that's <clears throat> sometimes it makes it more accessible to the audience if you say you're right over, you're blowing over a vamp because it makes, it can create more excitement mm. sometimes with a vamp than you can with, um, and musical interest too. I mean, like vamp can be very artistic and like one time someone, a friend of mine said that one of Monk's tunes was fantastic harmonically, but how do you blow it? I mean, uh, what I mean, because it was so complicated, but you almost have to, uh, it's basically variations on the melody to, 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 be, to be improvising on it because it was so complex, but mm. which Monk does too. He does, he, he does do melodic, which is beautiful aspect of his style too, that he um, plays the melody throughout sometimes in a solo and um, becomes a melodic variation as well as a harmonic variation. Now, I know you just had a chance to record a new album in November with Luis Perdomo and Gano Keguo and Adam Cruz. Is that right? Right, yeah. And is there anything that you can tell us about that music that we'll hear hopefully at some point soon? Well, yeah, it was a lot of, it was a labor of love, of a lot of fun, the great players, fantastic, unbelievable players. Yeah. And I got a lot of inspiration from their playing and um, I was trying to write something a little different for myself, more, more maybe more extended in terms of the compositional uh, framework and um, the details, like the different melodic ideas. There's one song called Robot Prelude, <laughs> Robot Etude, where I used, I wrote it pretty much in one fell swoop. I wrote it in one afternoon, but I, with a keyboard, but I wrote it on the piano and, but I really tried to stretch and um, using staccato notes and different harmonic structures. Um, I, I knew we did a gig at the Village Vanguard previous to the recording um, with a trio without the drums, but um, Adam Cruz was on the recording, did a great job, and as did Ghana and Luis, it sounded beautiful. And, but at, I knew since we were playing at the Vanguard, I, would, I really wanted to do, because I know VJ Ireland played at the Vanguard and I, well, I wanted to really do something a little more adventurous than I'd been doing before, but hmm. so I think it came out all right. Wow, I can't wait to hear it. I just had one last question. Um, you know, looking forward for yourself over the next 5, 10, 15, 20, however many years, do you have any goals for yourself as a player or as a writer or as an artist? Anything 
sort of that you're aiming at as you as you look forward into the years to come? Well, yeah, hopefully to keep doing it. The main thing is to keep doing it and um, try to keep uh, evolving and um, bring happiness to people. That's beautiful. Well, Tom, thanks so much for your time and welcome. Thank you. And uh, yeah, we can't wait to check out the new music and and thanks so much for all of your uh, your inspiration over the years and and even now in this time. I really appreciate it. Oh yeah, thank you. It's great to talk to you. Very meaningful. Yes. Yeah. Likewise. Wow, that was super heavy, you guys. <laughs> Man, talk about inspiration for days. I can't even wrap my head around all of the pearls of wisdom that Tom just dropped on all of us. You know, what was particularly compelling for me was just to hear how emotionally he relates to the music. You know, whether it be trumpet playing or improvising or writing or listening or, or whatever. And really, this is just a direct reflection of who Tom is as a person. You know, you, you can hear it in his voice. And, and you can hear it in his music. He's, it's one and the same. And man, that's such a great benchmark that he sets for all of us, that we would be honest with who we are and let that honesty come out through the music that we make. Well, thanks so much for tuning in, you guys. This is an incredible way to kick off the first season. I hope you're digging it so far. If you are, tell some people about it, spread the word, and we'll be back in two weeks with the next one. See you then. <laughs>